Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. One of the things that often surprises people when you talk to them about history is the idea that it evolves. After all, one might think, surely the past can't change. Well, no, but the people who interpret the past clearly do, which means that every society, every time and place, naturally produces a slightly different take on what has happened before. Sometimes this is called revisionist history, a famous example of which is the best-selling book Paris 1919 by University of Toronto historian Margaret Macmillan, which gave a distinctly different sort of interpretation of the Paris Peace Conference at the end of the First World War. But as Margaret explains it, it wasn't as if she set out to provide a radically new interpretation of events. She was just trying to understand what, exactly, was going on. Many people like to look at history as this objective statement of universal truth, or as close as we can perhaps come to an objective statement of universal truth. And we can talk more in detail about that in a moment, but it's somewhat ironic that given the fact that that is a goal for some people, you as a historian have written several books, and your last two have come out with two completely different titles, or at least rather different titles, in two parts of the world where they speak the same language. And I wonder if you have ever received any uh, any flack for that as somebody who's looking for a story to have two books that came out with different titles. Of course, it's in your responsibility, but I thought. No, I blame the publishers. Um, and I, the, the flack I've had is, is angry emails from people saying, I've just bought your book again, not realizing it's the same book. And I do not offer a refund. That is not my responsibility. It's, it's, you know, it's a transatlantic thing. Americans, publishers, like, put their own titles on them. And not only are they their own titles, but they're very impressive titles, because you're always changing the world somehow, what it is that you're doing. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's I don't like the trend, because I did a book on the Paris Peace Conference, which said six months to change the world, and then I did a, another book on President Nixon's trip to China, and that was six days to change the world. Right, so how many days do you have left then? Well, I'm getting down to milliseconds, you know, <laughs> and not that many, so the six milliseconds have changed the world, so I'm hoping we can find some other subtitles, but it's all about marketing. Sure. Um, I guess careening more into the, into the serious vein, our topic for today is uh, the, the purpose, the goals, the future, the limitation, the possibilities of history. Perhaps that's too grandiose a title. And I know that you are not somebody who, as a general rule, looks for grandiose summations of history. And if one reads your book, Uses of Abuses of History, you see that you have. Uh, you are resolute in trying to eschew any huge patterns in history and large movements in history and, and have preset orientations that people might like to impose on history. So perhaps I can just ask you a more pointed question, which is what what are the principal goals of history for you, or how would you describe 
the pursuit of history as an historian? I do it myself because I'm curious about the past and always have been. And so I find a great pleasure to look at history. I'm very leery about saying that history is very useful. I don't think we do history because of its utility. It doesn't give us a blueprint for the future, for example. I think what history does do is help us. It does a couple of things. It helps us to understand ourselves and know something about what produced us, the causes, the factors, the geography, whatever you want to think about that produced us. I mean, you can't think about Canadian history, I think, without understanding that we were once part of a much bigger empire. And that has helped shape Canada and its institutions. You can't think about Canadian history without understanding we live next door to one of the great powers in the world. And again, that's just part of what's helped us become what we are. I think history also helps us understand other people. And if you don't understand the other people, it's history. I think you list what sort of things that motivate them and that make them worry about yourself. So I think uh, I, I think I do actually. Yeah. Tom, can you can you? Uh, why is he a Tom? He's starting to cut. Yeah, it it just you made it over here. I don't know. That's fine. Well, I can start at. Um, so there are things from the top. I can start at the terms of history. Yeah. So, I mean, I think history helps us to understand other people and one of the sorts of things that have shaped them. I mean, how do you understand the conflict between um, Israelis and Palestinians unless you understand the histories of both peoples because their histories are very important? So, I think history does give us some understanding. It may give us some warnings if we do certain things, we may run into trouble. I don't think it will ever ever predict the future, but I think we do it because of curiosity, really. But of course, historians over time have been perhaps, um, I should say, a little bit bolder than what you're enunciating. There have been historians that have explicitly said, I am writing this down as a guide to future generations. I am doing this not only because I think it's important to bear witness, but so that it can be useful to people in the past. And so there is this, this rather, so, so that it can be useful to people in the future. So there is this, this, this clear avowal that that's one of the goals that some historians have had. Well, I think the distinction between bearing witness to the past, which I think is very important, and I think there are stories that have been hidden in the past that we need to know about. And I think nations sometimes have to confront very unpleasant things about themselves. And I think that's a very important part of being a grown up nation. But I think the sort of history that says there is a grand pattern in the world, or which tries to weave together the story of the past to prove the rightness or wrongness of a particular position, or the rightness or wrongness of a particular nation doing something. That sort of history, I think, is very bad. So I'd make a real distinction between the history, as you said, that bears witness, that is a record of what happened, and you have to look at that, and you have to be prepared to look at that in, in all its ramifications and at all angles. But the idea that there is a grand pattern, um, either the grand pattern is so vacuous in general, it doesn't tell you much. I mean, Arnold Toynbee, in some ways, was a very interesting historian, wrote about civilization growing, civilization defining. Well, I mean, I'm not sure that tells us very much. It just tells us things have beginnings, middles, and ends. Um, doesn't perhaps tell us the reasons why that happened. And, and I think history is often so specific that the reasons why things happen depend very much on a particular time. The other sort of history I really dislike, and I've been reading a lot of nationalist history from the 19th century, is the history that says, um, the British or the English or the Germans or the French, take whichever nationality might have always been a noble and wonderful people. Or preordained to rule. Well, or preordained or just better than anyone else, kinder than anyone else, 
one of the very most influential of the German academic historian was a man called von Treitschke, who influenced the whole generation, not just of German historians, but of German statesmen, German generals, and all of these wonderful influences left as a Berlin. And he believed that the Germans had always been an energetic and vigorous people, and always on the forefront of civilization. That's a history I think is very bad. Um, because it's wrong. I mean, there is no such thing as a German nation or a Canadian nation or whatever, as if it's an unchanging thing. It keeps changing and modifying itself and becoming something different. One of the things that you see in also quite adamant to protect people against is, is oversimplification. This is one example of oversimplification, but there are others. Mm-hmm. That there's, you know, well, history is, is history is a work in progress, I think. And it's not something that's fixed in the past. I and mean, we don't have a single picture of the present. I mean, if I said to you, what's the truth about Canada in today, we disagree about what the truth about Canada is today, because it depends what angle we're coming from. I'd say to you, you're leaving certain things out, you're not stressing enough, you say the same to me. So, I mean, history is, is a questioning, uh, looking for evidence, of trying to make sense of things, but it will change, partly because we find new evidence, but we ask new questions. And so, an example I always give is that when I was at the University of Toronto as an undergraduate student, there was not a subject called women's history. And there was a children's history and all that, one of other sorts of histories. And we began to ask questions about what had lives been like for women in the past because we became interested in women in the present. So right. we'll always be asking different questions. Every generation will have its own questions. Sure. So there's, there's obviously a clear link as history evolves between the values that we have, the orientations that we have, the discoveries that we have in the present as opposed to the past, and looking at the past through the view of, of, of how we change in the present. And yet, I want to get back to this idea of uh, how we might be able to learn from the past because I'm sensitive that one doesn't want to trivialize. When, when one talks about lessons of history, one doesn't want to make it seem as if there's a clear roadmap or a one-to-one mapping of uh, progress. And yet, I would imagine that there are some lessons that one can clearly use from the past. And, 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 and as the situation in the present becomes perhaps more akin to some other events that have occurred, interest becomes key. You mentioned in, in, in one of your books that you had a difficult time actually getting a publisher for Paris in 1919, mm-hmm. um, back in the 80s. And then, presumably, uh, when, when politics of the world changed and the wall came down, and all of a sudden the world started looking, presumably, a lot like it might have looked in uh, the pre war, pre first world war era, and perhaps just after that. Interest started uh, to become renewed in what it was that you were saying and doing. And I'm guessing that, that the reason why that happened is because there was a clear relevance of the two eras, and some people were thinking perhaps we might be able to learn from this, we might be able to benefit somehow from, from, from what had happened before. Well, I think, yes, you're interested in particular periods of history, and there's been big interest in the United States recently in Roman history, just as there was, in fact, in Britain before the First World War, and that's because both our powers feel that their prestige and their influence in the world is just on a decline. Um, it, it's too soon, I think, to tell in the case of the United States, and it, it wasn't clear that Britain was doomed to decline either, but there was an interest in other great empires in the past which had declined. So I think, yes, what's happening to the present very much affects what, what you're interested in in the past, so I, I do think that matters. I think where history is also helpful is it reminds us, and we need to be reminded again and again and again, that you will have very clever people who will say, look, this is the way things are, we're absolutely certain, and they are completely wrong. Mm-hmm. 
And I've been thinking this a lot. I mean, our capacity as human beings to deny things is enormous. And I've been thinking this of climate change. And, you know, I, I meet people who say, I don't believe in climate change, as if it's a question of belief. You know, they simply don't want to look at any evidence. And it seems to me, I bet you had exactly the same sort of people in the 16th century who said, I know the world's flat. I believe it's flat. And who refuse to look at evidence. So I think it's a useful reminder that we aren't as clever as we think we are. And also as a guide to the tenets of critical inquiry, presumably. Yeah. But history is about asking questions. And that's why I think um, you know, the idea that history is something you find a stone in your background, you dig it up, and there's a stone, and you don't have to do anything else with it because it's all solid. It's not. I mean, history is a process of question, it's evaluation, it's weighing evidence, it's weighing alternative explanations. And we often ask, what if in history? You know, what if something had gone a slightly different way? What if, uh, well, you know, there's so many, but what if Hitler had been killed in the trenches in the First World War? Mm-hmm. What if there hadn't been a great depression? You know, would things have unfolded differently? And the answer probably is they would. So I, mean, I think history also reminds you of the contingency of events. Right. And, and I guess that, that brings me up to another point of view you talked about the, the, the possibility of the counterfactual of Hitler having been killed in the trenches and so forth. Um, there has swung, the pendulum has swung back and forth throughout the centuries in prolific history in terms of great men versus uh, events that are on the ground, small events and so forth. And we uh, kind of move from the Tolstoy and the New York history to the non Tolstoy and the New York history and so forth and so on. Um, you have the opportunity to, to look deeply at several different times in the past under very close microscope as a professional historian. And you've, it seems to me that you've looked at both very, very carefully. That is to say, you've looked at the inner workings of power, you've looked at um, the characters and the personalities and the dynamics and the, and the relations between prime ministers and statesmen at key times in history, uh, and presidents, uh, and so forth. You've, you have also looked um, at private correspondence of individuals, and when one looks at uh, the, the, the history of women and Raj and so forth, you've looked at everyday people, or at least what might pass for everyday people in some context, under the, under the notion of the broad sweep of history. Do you use that? Perhaps I can. Um, how, would you, how would you put yourself in terms of uh, asking the question, is history more influenced by singular individuals doing singular things or a combination of all sorts of different factors? Would you put yourself more in the case of the, as it were, the great men changing history and, and singular uh, people at singular opportunities, or would it be more the incremental, smaller steps, collective mass of humanity? I'm going to give you a very irritating answer and say we're both. Well, and it depends it depends on what you're looking at. I mean, there are shifts in changes of sensibility, shifts in taste, which uh, shifts in economic patterns, which often take place over a very long time. I mean, it's a very good book I read about a year ago by Gail Collins, who's one of the economists of the New York Times, who wrote about wrote a book called When Everything Changed. And it's about the ways in which our attitudes towards women and women's attitudes towards themselves changed at some point in the 60s and 70s, right. and you could see the change coming, but it, it was something that was a change of sensibility. And so when I talk to young women today and say that things are very different when I was a young undergraduate, they, they almost think it's they can't believe how different it was. Right. So I think you get, you know, and um, 
because uh, I can't remember his name now, the great French historian who, who wrote about the Brodel, who wrote about the Mediterranean basin, who really felt that there were these great slow moving currents of history and, and people with sort of statesmen on princes and popes and froth on the top. Um, I do think, however, there are times when who is in a particular position matters because power does matter. And I think we became aware of that again after September the 11th, when clearly I think it had been a different set of people in the White House and a different set of people in Downing Street, and very importantly, a different prime minister and a different president, decisions would have been different. And I, so I think what, we, what I'm trying to do in history is, is, is see the slow-moving currents, the changes that are coming, and then look at the moments when people have to make decisions. But the people who are making the decisions are part of those currents of history. So you can't really separate them from their times. They're shaped by sure. attitudes, they're shaped by fashions, they're shaped by, by the world from which they, out of which they come. But they are individuals with their own proclivities and their own predispositions. I mean, one might say that it's clear that George W. Bush was someone who was a product of his time, but it's also clear that he had a particular set of characteristics that's different from many other people who were a product of it. I mean, I think if you want to look at his decision to go out to Iraq, you probably have to look at his relationship with his father. Because his father did the first Gulf War, didn't go into Iraq, I think wisely decided to, to stop basically borders leaving Saddam Hussein. Sure. With, with an international coalition as well. With an international coalition. And when he did have a sort of coalition in the second Gulf War, but it was mainly Britain, um, there was that awful joke. It wasn't the coalition. Yeah, well, they said it wasn't the coalition of the willing, it was the coalition of the billing. I mean, there were a few people who, who got subsidized for going in. Um, you know, I think the polls went in for their own reasons. I think the polls are very important to have a good relationship with the United States. Right. That, that's understandable. But I do think um, you need to be yes, asked to look at the individual character of the man who's making that decision. I think you need to look at the individual character of Tony Blair. I mean, he was getting advice not to go into Iraq. He was getting advice from his own foreign office, which was very, very cautious on, on this. And he seems to have felt that this was his mission. And how do you explain that? I mean, I do think that you have to get at some point into speculating about the individual psychology of people in such positions. I think it has to be speculative a little bit based upon what you just said when you talked about how, uh, how one could see the change coming uh, in terms of perspective of women's issues and so forth. Can you see any changes coming now in terms of our society and how we might look at the past differently in five, ten, or fifteen years? Or have you already are you can you see the process of historical studies actually changing now? Well I think we're seeing it with more questioning about the role of the United States in the world, clearly, particularly by Americans and think that's something. I think a trend or, or an interesting question which is now being asked is about democracy. Because we have grown up in the West simply assuming democracy is the best form of government. Mm -hmm. There's no other form of government that works as well. And I don't know how many times I've heard that thing Churchill said, you know, church, democracy is the worst form of all possible forms of government except for the others. Mm -hmm. But if you look back at the 19th century, a lot of people at the time, good liberals, did not think democracy mm -hmm. was a good thing. John Stuart Mill was very skeptical about it. And we have simply assumed for a number of years that democracy, and, and sometimes our definition of democracy is rather simplistic. I mean, when the United States um, goes around the world putting that democracy, it often seems to mean just holding elections, which seems to me isn't democracy. So I think we are now looking at the ways in which democracy works, and I think, and I'm certainly not suggesting we're going to go back to 
um, authoritarian regimes or would want to go back to authoritarian regimes or, or rule by rule by oligarchy or, or monarchical rule. But I think we're now in the process of asking whether there are ways in which democracy does not work well. And I think the current election campaign in the United States, where huge amounts of money is spent, and where you get people able to influence voters, not always, but sometimes by the sheer weight of, of things, is making us wonder whether the form of government which we've taken for granted for so long is, is working all that well. So I do think that's one of the things we're seeing. A very interesting discussion. Is, is that more, in your view, because of the difficulties associated with current democracies such as the United States and the proclivities towards demagoguery and the, and the role of money and all the rest of that? Or, or is it equally uh, a factor related to the rise of China, the rise of other civilizations, uh, not so much civilizations, uh, the, rise, the rise of other economies and the rise of other countries uh, on the world stage that are that seem to have at least from some measures, I don't want to talk about human rights, but from an economics perspective and, and, and industrial growth, uh, been able to do all sorts of interesting things without a clearly democratic state. Well, so, I think that discussion has been going on for some time. I mean, you've had people in uh, Lee Kuan Yew in, in Singapore yeah. saying that you know, I ran a very successful little city state where people are prosperous, they, they have good education, they get on with their lives, but I don't allow a great deal of democracy. And, and, and he, I mean, he's talked about an Asian model or Confucian model. Anything, so Asian values. Asian values and so on. I think, again, it's too soon to tell. I mean, the China example, I think, is, is it, we haven't had it around long enough. You know, it's really only since the end of the 70s that the Chinese, have, uh, the Chinese authorities have loosened up and allowed a certain amount of free enterprise. And I, my own feeling is the model is shaking than it, than, than it sometimes is assumed to be. And I think there are huge problems of legitimacy, I think the problems of um, lack of the voice of people who feel that there's too much corruption that they've been represented in the system. I, th I think I think there are more problems there than we know. But yes, I mean, I think we're very much affected by what happens in our own times, but how we look at particular things. I mean, another very interesting discussion I think is just happening now. Again, it reminds me of the discussion we've got in Victorian England, the discussion we've got at the end of the uh, 19th century before the First World War, about the moral values of our society. Mm -hmm. You know, are we actually doing the best for our people? Are we allowing people to live fulfilled and happy lives? I and mean, I think there are some very interesting moral discussions going on. Now, these aren't new, but I think we're coming back to it again, wondering if you know, the advanced capitalist model, which has delivered so much in the way of material success and, and, so, and has delivered a lot in the way of possibility for people, is it delivering happiness? That's right. And people are talking about a happiness quotient now and yeah. this, this sort of thing. Yeah. They certainly weren't 20 years ago, no. at least in my opinion. No, I mean, we just used to assume that happiness meant uh, freedom from war, freedom from want, um, freedom of, of uh, responsible freedom, freedom of expression, um, freedom, freedom of religion. And I think we're now beginning to ask questions about is there more to life? And I, and I think uh, getting back to, to the notion of not being overly simplistic or part of taking. Um, Right words as the be all and the end all, such as democracy, you mentioned, but just, just going to the ballot boxes is not an end necessarily uh, in and of itself. And there are all sorts of different types of democracies, and, and, and all sorts of different types in which they could be structured. And one looks back at the founding fathers of the United States and, and what their particular concerns were, and why they established an electoral college, and why they did all the rest of these sorts of things. There were some, uh, there were some real concerns. 
with the idea of democracy as we now seem to understand it, which doesn't mean that it's right and it doesn't mean that it's wrong, but it is interesting that we now have an opportunity to, I suppose, just on what you're saying, look more critically at the situation. Well, I think we should never assume, and I think, I mean, I don't know if history helps us with this, but I think as citizens are assuming, maybe we should never assume that the present situation is the best one. Mm-hmm. And in fact, part of what I think that why, why I support liberal values is because liberals are willing, small liberals are willing to admit that things have to be discussed. There are no final solutions for things. There are there are solutions which work well for time, um, and then you have you may have to rethink things. And it's the process of rethinking is, is what we should be doing. I don't think there's a perfect way to run society. It's always a process of back and forth and trying to work out what works best at any particular time. There's a strong correlation, obviously, with your orientation based upon your experience in international affairs, international relations, and history, and the crossover between. Uh, all of these different areas. When I, uh, again, when I was reading the, the uses and abuses of history, it seemed to me that it's almost as if there are two different types of history. So here was my sense. I'm completely off base. There's the history that I thought was what I would call interested history, which is to say that people who are practicing it or people who are um, looking critically at the situation of the past have a vested interest, have a stake in it, be it to try to ensure that politicians are kept honest, be it to try to get an understanding of what grievances may have been committed towards a particular group or a set of groups in the past, uh, whether people have adhered to a particular treaty, or what constitutes nationhood, what the story of the nation is, and so forth. Um, these are stories that we tell about ourselves, or try to establish about ourselves, to try to ensure uh, that we have an understanding of, uh, of our world and our society. And then there is the history that, uh, at least from a, um, from a reader's perspective, I would call completely disinterested, in the sense that I don't have a particular resonance with what happened in uh, 5th century Athens. I'm not a Athenian, I don't, I don't particularly uh, my, my chest doesn't rise or fall with, with the fate of one particular politician or another, or if I want to look at what happens in Renaissance Italy, I'm not, I'm not Italian, but I do subscribe to some of the values where I find it curious and interesting. So just from the perspective of intellectual curiosity, there, there seems to be a sense that, I'm not sure if this applies to people who are actually practicing history, but when I imagine going into a bookstore and saying, what sort of book would I be interested in, or what sort of history am I curious about, or what sort of history would be presented in the newspaper? There seems to be history as written as accountability and as necessarily interesting to a group of people uh, by dint of their nationhood or their political orientation. And then there just seems to be this notion of intellectual curiosity. Is it fair to say that there's any, any sort of distinction? Because in my mind, there's something too. There seems to be a bit of a split there. I suppose there is a distinction. I mean, if you want to understand Canada, you probably want to look at um, the societies and civilizations which have shaped Canada, including Canadian society. So I think that makes sense. But I think you also have to understand Europe um, and the ideas which came from Europe and institutions which came from Europe. But you don't have to understand Japan. You don't have to understand, and, and so, yeah. or, or you don't have to understand China. So if you want to get a book out on the Ming Dynasty or something, that's not, not necessarily going to be directly. No, what it might do is 
arounds your curiosity in another sort of way by making you aware that the societies which were organized on different principles yes. and which had different ideas and different ways of doing things. And so, for example, I, I went through a phase of being quite interested in Byzantine history. And it was organized in a different sort of way. And the Byzantine worldview, not thought that was a different one. And they believed, for example, that spirits were very much part of the world in which they lived. They, they, they made no distinction between the actual physical world that they saw around them and the world of spirits. Mm -hmm. And they, they just thought it was all part of the same thing. And that is interesting because it makes you realize that there are many ways of organizing human societies and many systems of belief. And it may make you think about your own society. And sometimes you will find that societies which seem very remote, in some ways perhaps in a bit different. I mean, Roman society, particularly after the Republic, I mean, in the days of the, of the Empire, was very much based on show. Young men made names for themselves by their, their oratory and by their public figures. I mean, that's not so unlike some of what we do. So I think perhaps you get at your own society in a more bleak way by looking at histories of, of societies which seem more remote and different. But I'm not sure it's ever entirely going to leave you thinking, well, that's got nothing to do with me. No, indeed. And, uh, in, fact, in fact, one of the things that, that, that I find uh, just as, as somebody who enjoys uh, occasionally reading history is the, the wonderful experience of feeling that you are, you are to some extent a kindred spirit of people who live in a completely different time, in a completely different place. And there's this resonance which often arrives very suddenly and seemingly out of the blue. Um, that you think, my goodness, I feel the same sort of way that this person did, who lived in a completely different culture, completely different values. And of course, that brings to mind this notion of the human condition. What is the human condition? And what, what are the elements of commonality between people, understanding their external constraints and so forth? I know. It, and I, that's one of the reasons I find history so fascinating. You suddenly get this sense. I remember, I remember years ago when things were just beginning to open up after the Cultural Revolution in China, we had an exhibition here at the Royal Ontario Museum. And in Toronto, there was a display of things that the Chinese had dug up, extraordinary things. And the thing I remember vividly was a very small dumpling, which a workman had left in, I think, the 2nd century BC, part of his lunch. He'd been working on the, the tomb of the, of the Qin Emperor. And they had this little dumpling. And he suddenly thought, you know, here was someone having his lunch, put it down, forgot about it. And he came from a very different world, but there was a sudden feeling that, yes, he was a human being, a little bit of his lunch, I could do the same with my sandwich. Do you find that as you teach, um, I was going to say particularly with prospective students, but maybe I should just back up and say in general, as you speak to people about history, there's almost a, there tends to almost be a disdainful view of the past, almost a patronizing view of the past. Oh, these people live back then, oh, yes, well, what do they know anyway? And of course, they didn't have cell phones, and they didn't have this, and they didn't have that. Um, and it's almost a trivialization of their lives and almost an inability to empathize that yes, these were these were individual people who had their dumplings, who had their aspirations, who, who had um, maybe a, a very uh, passionate and eloquent way of expressing themselves. I think we may know this intellectually, but almost on an emotional level, in my experience, that it tends to be sometimes a disdainful patronizing look at the past. Does, it, does that happen in your experience as well? Or not? Oh, no, I think it happens a lot professional historians as well. And I don't mean just people in the university, I mean people who do history, whether they're journalists or wherever, they're writing history. Yeah, there's often a sense of, you know, 
isn't that quaint and who are these people and you know they just got it wrong. I mean there's been a, a huge interest in cultural history in the past 20 years, 30 years, which is very interesting, but there has tended to be an assumption that we see much more clearly than those poor boobies in the past. Mm -hmm. But they didn't know that, for example, um, you know, that they, they believed in certain things because they were told to believe them and they had no, no no will of their own. And I think we have to be careful about that. Um, because someone's gonna be looking at us and saying we're idiots. Mm -hmm. You know, what silly things they did. Sometimes right now. Yeah, <laughs> we need to do that more often. Um, there was a quote you quoted Michael Howard saying uh, at some point that the role of a historian is to challenge and to some extent even explode national myths. I want to move a little bit more towards history and identity and, uh, and nationalism. And you said that you, you agreed with that as a, you know, as, as a goal, or at least one of the roles of a historian. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's a fine line. I think there's nothing wrong with knowing your own story, uh, and that is a complicated story. We're not all agreeing what the story is, but there's a generalized one to agree on. And being rightly proud of some of the things we've achieved. I mean, putting this country together, this huge geographical mess, building railways, is, I think, an important and interesting story, and you should be proud of it. Building a democracy that works, and parliamentary government that works, and these are things, I think, that are important. And I think there's no harm in taking pride in but I think when it becomes dangerous, we say we are the most wonderful people and everyone else is awful, and we've always been good. And I think that's when it can be dangerous. And I think we need to understand that we have made mistakes too. You know, we, t we tell ourselves, you know, when I grew up in Canada, we were such a nice kind of people, we never did anything awful to anyone else, and we weren't so nice and kind mm -hmm. to the Aboriginal people, for example. And we weren't so nice and kind to some of the immigrants who came. And I think we need, we, we don't have to go to the opposite extreme. What the Australians call black hat history and say we're all evil and wrong. But I think we need to be aware that we haven't always done the right thing. And we need to examine that because we should hope that we will try to do a little bit better in future. It seems to be there may be a bit of a connection to which argument here. So there was something I, I stumbled upon the other day. I was reading um, the, the letters of Richard Feynman. And there was this wonderful exchange between Richard Feynman and somebody. Who wanted to put together, uh, I think it was Tina Nabati or something. And she was interested in putting together a book of Jewish Nobel Prize winners. So she approached Richard Feynman as someone that the Jewish faith would love the Nobel Prize and wanted to know if he would be included in this book. And he said, he wrote about Rick Lightning, he said, no, I'm not interested in this, uh, thank you very much. And then she pressed him as to why he wasn't interested. He said, uh, he said, when I was growing up, I was told this history of how these marvelous and talented people, the Jews, were surrounded by these, as he called it, evil and dull strangers. And I came to conclude that uh, this was a story that I didn't have a great deal of uh, respect for and faith in. And moreover, he went on to say, oh, he thought this was actually dangerous. Because uh, invoking some of the ideas that he said had been destroyed in the last war, in the Second World War, that if one starts to look at oneself as a race, um, and if one looks at oneself in this uh, proud way as a race, and starts invoking that sort of categorization for oneself, then you can hardly be terribly upset when other people come along and start. Casting negative aspersions on you. Uh, 
for those very reasons. That is to say that you are a race. And in his view, um, there are many wonderful and positive aspects of the Jewish people, as many Jewish people as there are in all people around us, and there are many horrible and unattractive aspects as there are in all people around us, and that is not the criterion by which he, he should be, uh, he likes to look at the world. And then, uh, after this, which was quite an emphatic way, in a typically honest way that Feynman wrote, uh, after, after this exchange, she came back, I think, one year later and asked him again if he wanted to do this. And he came up with this memorable line saying that he was not interested in being a part of the latest, as he called it, adventure and prejudice. So it seems to me there's a very fine line between uh, this adventure and prejudice, as it were, and being proud of oneself as a people, as a nation, as a race, whatever that happens to be. And I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily the business of historians to sort out, to sort out. But I do think um, when one starts about uh, when one starts to to look with a with a venerable eye towards this history of of a particular people, there are dangers that, that are necessary. For yeah, I would make a distinction between the sort of history which taught. I mean. The very talk of race, as if there are clearly distinct races in the human species, seems to me very, very dubious indeed. In fact, the more research we do, the more we realize how much people who may look different, have different skin colors, different shape eyes, actually have, you know, what is it, 99.9% in common. Very, very small differences that... Well, it was never terribly well defined. I mean, the, the idea of race predated our, our awareness of, of genetics, and so it was never a terribly well defined notion at all, other than as a mask of feelings of superiority, as you were saying earlier. Well, it, it, it was very 19th century idea that really, I think, influenced very much by this reading of Darwin, that you could divide up the human species into a whole of separate species, which completely ignores the way in which human beings have moved across the world. I mean, they've moved across the world, they've mixed up with each other. Um, you know, even the Japanese who live on islands and probably have been more isolated than the Aboriginal Australia, perhaps, I mean, you, you can say there are a few um, members of both sections of the human race, which would probably have less intermingling with other people from other places, but even they came from somewhere else and had people coming and going. So, I mean, you know, we now know so much more about the, the minuscule genetic differences, which are mostly to do with superficial things like color of hair and color of eyes, and have very little to do with, with, with brains and so on, which seems to me that this whole notion of dividing human species up into a whole lot of separate races just is absolutely. Um, unscientific, it doesn't make much sense. Having said that, I think you can identify cultural traits which will often persist for some time, and or, you know, in some cases for, for quite a long time. But even then, I mean, what it was to be Jewish in the first century AD is very different from what it is to be Jewish today. That's right. And that has changed over time. I mean, certain things have, have remained part of the articles of faith, but you think of the ways in which people have lived in, in different Jewish communities down through centuries. Um, to say that there is a kind of Jewish way of living. I mean, I, I, I'm with Feynman. I think these, these distinctions are very dangerous and I think wrong. But I think you can, when you look at a, a particular grouping, I mean, I would make a real distinction between sort of ethnic nationalism, which tends to slide over into this racial blood nationalism, saying that mm-hmm. people would always be like this, as if there are certain characteristics, characteristics which never change. And you know, that just is, is nonsense. But I think. The kind of civic nationalism which we have in Canada, which doesn't say you have to be any particular 
religion or any particular race or look in any particular way to be Canadian is something that we have built and we continue it continues to change. And it can be said, you know, we can we can take pride in that without saying to be Canadian you must be this and you must be that. I mean that drawing the lines that got us into hideous trouble in the twentieth century and I think we don't want any more of it. But the lines, of course, between ethnicity and nationalism, as you much more than anyone know, blur uh, often to a pernicious extent. It's very, very difficult to, to separate. One of the things that you, you, had, you had mentioned when I was reading Paris 1919, there was this notion of uh, Wilson coming to, President Wilson coming to Europe and talking about self-determination, this, this, this new idea. And crowds of people were tremendously excited about this idea that finally people in their own land would have their indigenous territories, would have their, the ability to control their own fate, and somehow be regarded as, as separate entities and wouldn't be oppressed by, as, by empires uh, and looked at as, as colonies and so forth. But right from the very beginning, it was acknowledged by, by all sorts of people, of course, that this was, these were wonderful words, but it was extremely vague. It was very difficult to know exactly what to do. And maybe it was even necessarily vague. But I think with Wilson, you have to remember that what he really felt was important was the right people to determine their own governments. And so he didn't believe, I mean, the, the reason he thought that, the, the, say, the Czechs and the Poles had been oppressed was because they had been. Right. And Poles divided from three different empires and, and didn't have the right to determine their own fate. And the Czechs didn't have the right within Austria Hungary uh, to determine their own fate. And he didn't want to destroy their own empires. What he wanted was the peoples within them to have a great say over their lives. And, and it's very interesting to me that I mean, he came from the south in the United States. He, he grew up during he grew up in the last uh, aftermath of the Civil War. But he never believed that the south should you know, split away from the north. And he believed that the Democratic government people could have a share in their own government. And very interesting in Paris, he refused to see Irish nationalists. Right. Because he said, you live in a, in a democratic society with representative institutions, work through those. Um, what I think he probably wouldn't have been pleased to see is the growth of ethnic nationalism. I mean, again, troubles in English, I think we really don't make the distinction up between nationalism and patriotism. And I think they are different. And patriotism is what I see as something which is basically says, look, we're okay, we think what we've got is pretty good, we'd like to, you know, we'd like it to go on. Um, it's patriotism doesn't mean you want to go out and conquer other people, make them love you, or, or grab other pieces of territory. Whereas nationalism gets us into this whole thing of my nation is better than anyone else. Um, you know, we are, and, and particularly ethnic nationalism. So you, you get again this very bad sort of um, misreading of Darwin. You get people talking about the German race in the 19th century and then the 20th mm -hmm. century, or the French race, um, which is completely nonsensical, but it, it's very, very powerful. It's that sort of nationalism which I, I find dangerous because it's what it's saying is that there's somehow this badly defined but very important entity called the nation, which if you're in, you're in. But if you're out, you can never be in. Whereas what we say in, in countries where you have a simple sort of patriotism called civic nationalism, you know, yes, you can become Canadian if you're prepared to accept certain things, or you can become British if you're prepared to accept certain things. Now, it's never as straightforward as that. And what we're getting in Europe now, I think, is is a, is a reaction to immigration. People saying, "Oh, Muslims don't belong in, in the Netherlands because they're not really Dutch." Mm -hmm. you know, they, I mean, this is this is problematic. I think it's real. It's really difficult, and I think it's wrong. 
But that's more nationalism rather than patriotism. Well, patriotism is more benign yeah. than it's. I would say so. George Orwell put it very well. He said patriotism is essentially defensive. It's saying, look, you know, I quite like the place I live. I think it's okay. I mean, this was his attitude in the Second World War. He thought there was a lot wrong with British society. They thought it was nevertheless a fairly decent place worth defending. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't going to beat his chest and wasn't going to say, you know, wave the Union Jack and say, my country is the best in the world. I mean, what he was saying is, you know, I think we're muddling along pretty well. What we've got here is worth defending. And it was defensive. For him, patriotism was defensive. It was not about going out and saying, you know, we're going to show you the best. For him, patriotism was saying, look, just let us get on with our own lives. We're managing our affairs. We're not being a threat to anyone else. Whereas he saw nationalism as something that was aggressive, um, emotional, irrational, um, wanting to push other people around. But shouldn't we be installed instilling rather patriotism uh, in our own children here in Canada, should we be more patriotic? Should we be telling people to be more patriotic? Should we be reading patriotic history? I mean, where does this patriotism come from, and where, where, what should we be doing as a society to engender it or, or dissuade it? Uh, quite frankly, I don't like the idea of us telling anyone to do anything. I don't like the idea of top-down, um, government-directed um, emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, I think what, what what we should do, and what any country should do, is make it possible for people to learn about their own country's past, learn about their own country's institutions. It's not just history, it's knowing about how things work in your country, and understanding something about the legal system, understanding something about the political system, and let people make up their own minds. I mean, I really don't like the idea of telling a single national story or making us all pump up chess. I mean, it seems like that's rather un-Canadian. I mean, we've never... We've never been great flyweighters in this country. I don't know. I, 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 one of the themes that, that, that I've always encountered in Canada is this notion that we're not patriotic people, that we should be more proud of being Canadian. Um, I've never really understood why we should be proud of being Canadian. You, you talk about having a sense uh, of conquering the land. You talk about, uh, or at least you alluded to the idea of being welcoming to immigrant groups. Uh, I mean, these are clear ideas of what it means and what one should yeah. be proud of. But, but this notion of pride and that, and that one should have more pride often seems disconnected with the particular values and what it is that one should be proud of. Well, I think we, we should make up our own minds about what we're proud of. I think we have actually built quite a decent society in which people live together pretty much in harmony. I mean, I think we, we are very fortunate, but I think we've also have all of us, I hope, contributed something to this. When you look at Society where things go badly wrong, well, like Somalia, yeah. like Afghanistan today, or, or like um, Syria, certainly today. I mean, we should recognize that we have somehow collectively managed to create something which allows people to live in dignity, which does its best, and its best isn't always good enough to try and help those who are less fortunate within society. I'm not saying we've got it right, but I think, you know, we should actually take pride in what we've managed to achieve. And it seems to me that we are offering a, a decent and stable way of life for people within which they can get on. I mean, I think people should be allowed to be private citizens and all of what they sure, want. Sure. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I mean, I think governments should take an interest in what's taught in schools. I think that is important because that's where many of our ideas are shaped in, mm-hmm. our, in our education. And I think it's right that Canadians should study their own country, should study their own history. And I think we, that, that is it. We need to know something about where we come from. But I, the idea that we should all be waving flags and beating our chest, it seems to me that... It's a dangerous line to go over, but I think we've seen the damage that aggressive nationalism can do. Are there aspects of a national story in this country or in England or, or other places that you visited um, that 
that you think are, are not being told well or should be should be told differently? Or uh, do you have a sense that the people here, at least in Canada or in the United Kingdom, do have a, a, a sufficient knowledge of their own their own history and the reasons for it that the primary might have? Well, we're always going to disagree about what people's feeling in their own history. I, mean, I personally think it's very important that you learn the narrative. Um, but if you do bits of disconnected history, you don't get any sense of how it all fits together. Mm-hmm. So you should know something about what this land was like before the Europeans first started coming. You should know something about the first encounters between the Aboriginal inhabitants and the Europeans, what those Europeans were, what they brought with them, what sort of institutions they began to build. You should know something about confederation. And I think you need to know the order in which it happened. Um, and I think this, this, there was a trend for much too long, I think, it was a disconnected history. You do a bit of this and you jump 50 years into a bit of that. And it didn't give you a sense of how it would fit it together. Yeah, but I mean, history is something that we'll always disagree about what should be told. It seems to me there are certain things that probably should be included. And I think it is important for people to understand their own past. But you're, are you basically happy or unhappy with the amount of what you see as historical literacy of people in society? Do you, do you I, I mean, I'm not asking to, for, for a ranking or anything like that, but do you have a sense that people are, as a general rule, woefully historically illiterate or, or not bad? Or what is, what is your sense? It, it, it depends. You know, it depends where they went to school, which province they came from. And I think Alberta, in my impression, I have done a rather better job about teaching history than, say, some other provinces. I mean, if you look at what's happened, I think, you know, and I think I'm writing the Ontario curriculum, history has been chopped back and crossed out into things like civics and, and, and different things. So people get a bit of this and a bit of that. And I'm not sure there's enough actual focus on history. I mean, the other thing I think people should know about is not just Canadian history, because we are part of a wider world. And you can't understand this country unless sure. you understand the world in which it exists and has existed. Well, hard to be counts in any country. You, you mentioned narrative history and, and the importance of writing in a captivating way. In other places, you, you talk about your frustrations with uh, uh, people who write history in a dry, uninteresting way. And in fact, there was even, there was even somebody you mentioned, I can't remember who it was, and perhaps it's not even appropriate to say, but there, there was somebody who said uh, history shouldn't be really entertaining. It shouldn't be entertaining because, after all, physics isn't entertaining, and, and that's not why physicists do what they do, and tax dollars shouldn't be made to support that sort of thing. Yeah. I don't want to necessarily harp on that point so much, but I, I want to bring up something which, in my view, is related, which is quite interesting about the practice of history, insofar as when a historian comes out with a work of scholarship and, and a, a, a significant effort uh, upon which he or she has spent a considerable amount of time and upon which the, the careers may be based. It's often written, certainly for the professional historical community, but it's also written for the general public in many cases. And, and this strikes me as actually quite different than most uh, academicians. Most people will write their biologists will, will uh, uh, do publish their work in, in various journals, and an archaeologist will do something similar. And history seems wonderfully unique, perhaps not all that unique, but in my mind, wonderfully unique in this way that, that a historian can simultaneously uh, do her job and participate in educating, enlightening, stimulating the general public. Well, there's been a tug of back and forth in the profession 
because when I began when I was an undergraduate in the early 60s at the University of Toronto, the people who taught us, who were some of the great figures in Canadian history, like Donald Creighton or um, Jim Curtis, wrote books on history which members of the public could pick up and read with pleasure. They often published with non academic presses. Mm-hmm. And then since then, there was a push to make history more scientific, which I, I think was probably this reading of science. I mean, you scientists have had, I think, in my view, a rather bad influence, unwittingly. That's nothing to do with me, I'm just an interviewer. Yeah, but so. anyway, but what goes on in, in um, your scientists, actually? Uh, only, only by yeah. high school. Yeah, but, um, but what goes on in sciences was seen, I think, in humanities and in social sciences as something that more authentic, more um, evidence-based, more theoretical, and more important. So I think you had a pull towards wanting to be like scientific papers. And I think it's had a rather bad effect. I mean, I think it's led to, um, I think it's wrong. I mean, I don't think history will ever be a science. I mean, you use evidence, but you use it in different ways. Um, clearly, evidence is important for us, but I think it's led to a, a pull towards more specialized language um, to show that we're really scientific and we're really serious. And it's, what it's led to is the production of things that are virtually unreadable, mm. and nobody wants to read. And there's been a swing back from that. With, you know, this, this, this one. I don't think you can blame science for that. I mean, how can you use literature things that are unreadable? No, but I'm not sure. It's not fault of science, but I think there's been a longing to want to be okay, like science. Okay, that was good. Um, but Paris in 1919 must have been uh, extremely good for your career and your reputation in the field, I would imagine. Or correct me if I'm wrong. The, the, the historians say, well, that's all very well and good. But um, but that was a that was a poppy work. When Tony Judd came out with post war, my understanding is that was something that was considered a hallmark work and, and the and the pinnacle of uh, to, to some extent his academic career. And that's a book that yes requires some slogging, but but certainly is is, is acceptable and, and, and uh, stimulating for the general public. It's easier to do when you're older, quite frankly, because when you're younger. Um, you know, what's happened, it's, it's also become much more systematic. So if you want to get an academic job, you have to publish sure. so much. If you want to get tenure, you have to publish so much. And you have to publish in a peer-reviewed journals or a peer-reviewed presses. And some universities, I think the more enlightened ones, will accept the fact that um, a trade publisher, a good, solid publisher like Penguin, for example, publishes very serious historical work. And, and that those things are as important as something published in, in the university press. But you do get this sort of mindless, um, in some cases, being counted where people say only things published with academic presses count. And I've actually come across this, not myself, but with, with, with the young historian I knew who was told that he shouldn't have published with a very reputable general press because he should have published with something that was an academic press. And, and the point there is that he published something quality and what they should sure. was that. Sure. But there is, there's a trend to try and systematize it. You should have so many articles and peer reviewed journals. It's when you're older, you can just say, well, I don't need to worry about this right. and do it. Um, and I think, you know, I think the fact that a lot of us have published things that can be read by the general public as, as well as by people in, in a particular field has encouraged younger historians, who, who, many of whom I think would like to do the same sort of thing. And, you know, narrative history and the old point of history, there are lots of very you know, interesting histories written in different ways, but I think there has been a revival of narrative history. It's thanks to the work of Simon Shalom, thanks to the work of Tony Judd, that tell us the story, tell us how it happened, tell us how it came to be. And that's not such a bad thing to be trying to do. When you're writing, 
Um, maybe you could give us a, a, a little bit more of a sense of the process. One of the things that I took away from Paris 1919, for example, was this, again, perhaps overly simplistic analysis that the Treaty of Versailles was a catastrophe which led irrevocably to the rise of Hitler in the Second World War, is a superficial and, in many respects, in many respects, a simply erroneous way of looking at the situation. Yes, it wasn't perfect by any stretch of imagination. Yes, there were all sorts of difficulties. And it, and it left a legacy uh, that was certainly mixed at best, but it's dangerous to take uh, such a such a simplistic view. That was that was what I what I took away from this. So as you're writing this, do you go into researching and writing a book like Paris 1919 with such an idea already in your head, or do you think to yourself, this was an interesting time, this was a pivotal time? I'd like to learn a little bit more about that. No, I, I I go to something that I'm interested in them. And it seems to me sometimes there are questions which can be asked that haven't yet been asked, or um, you know. And I, no, I don't usually know what I'm thinking about a subject until I finish writing the book, because I work out my ideas as I'm writing. And I didn't expect to do a revisionist say on the Paris Peace Conference. I mean, what drew me to the Paris Peace Conference was it was this very interesting event at the end of the First World War, where lots of people, where lots of issues seemed to come up, which affected the world in which we live. So I'd like to tell the story of that. And then the more I looked at it, I kept on saying to myself, which I think you have to do this in the story. Um, you know, these people have been judged quite harshly for what they did then. What would I have done differently? What could they have done differently? And it occurred to me that they had certain things they had to deal with. I mean, they had a Germany which had been defeated, but was still very powerful. They did not want to invade it. They didn't want to lose any more lives. But after four years of war, you can understand why. They had armed forces which were diminishing daily because people were going home, they would be mobilizing, they had publics that were doing more than paying for armed forces. Their capacity to influence events was, I think, less than people had assumed. And so to say that people, you know, the top people who met in Paris who were responsible for everything that went wrong, seems to me to overestimate their, their power to, to affect events. So I ended up with a rather sort of pressing conclusion that Perhaps the objective conditions for making a lasting peace were simply not there in 1919. But what has also happened since I wrote my book, and it was actually happening when I was doing it, this has been very interesting research on the 1920s, which had been overlooked for a long time as simply the precursor to the 30s when everything went wrong. Mm -hmm. And now people are looking at it and saying, you know, actually things are looking pretty good. There was a revival, institutions were built, Germany was coming back into the community of nations. Um, German politics was beginning to settle down, and people might not have gone so bad if it hadn't been for the Great Depression. So we're now looking back and saying, you know, you can't just say everything went wrong in 1939 as a result of 1919. You need to look at what happened in those 20 years. 20 years is a reasonably long time. Okay. Well, not what happened in those particular 20 yeah. years as well. Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk just a little bit. I'd like to talk a little bit about specialization. You talk about the uh, the constraints that, that any professional historian, any academic has in terms of having to publish in the right journals and fulfilling a certain uh, standard of rigor and so forth, a certain level of expectation. Mm -hmm. um, you're somebody who's broadly interested in history. And that you naturally are specialized in 20th century and 19th century, late 19th century history. Um, I guess I have two questions, which is first of all, what drew you to that particular time period? What is it that, that, uh, that, that led to that 
specialization for you. Uh, and then the second is, is that, is that frustrating sometimes? Do you feel, gosh, I'd really like to roll up my sleeves and pour into the 17th century or pour into a period in, in Roman history or ancient Roman history or, or what have you, or, or do you not feel any, any constraint or any frustration? Um, how I got into the 19th and 20th centuries was partly accident. Um, when I left the University of Toronto, I said the one thing I'll never do is Victorian history again. I got rid of all my Victorian history books, which of course I've been having to buy back ever, ever since. Um, I don't. I don't know how I got into it. I, I know that I my thesis was on the British India. Don't ask me how I got into that, but I found it fascinating. And so sometimes it's accident. You just stumble on a subject. And I often say this to students when they're PhD subjects. I say, get rid of all the things you're not interested in. That's the beginning, and then you know you will find something you love. And so it's partly accident. Um, yes, I would like to do other periods, but it does take a lot of time to get up to speed. I mean, I just have a sense now of the 20th century and the 19th century that I've been reading about for a very long time. And not just reading the history, reading the novels, reading the memoirs, um, looking at the paintings, right. um, in the case of the 20th century, looking at the movies. So I have, you know, I think if you, if you mean to understand the history of the period, you have to have a sense for its texture. Right. You have to immerse yourself completely yeah. in that, in that mm-hmm. one. And presumably there are some dangers of being considered superficial as well. I know that there's this, um, well, Barbara Tuchman, who I know had, had a strong influence on you in respect to the norms, who wrote this book, A Distant Year, where she yeah. was making some connection between viewpoints and mentalities or orientation of the 14th century and that, that, that led in some way to the 20th century. And I think that that's a very difficult thing to pull off. Yeah, and she did get criticized for it. Um, although I think what she did in that was, was very impressive indeed. And she also got criticized for her book on Stillwell in China. Um, and I think, I, I did, wouldn't agree with the time, but I think now rightly so, because she didn't really have a sense of China that much. You know, she had a good sense of the American side. And I think, you know, it's, it's always tempting to go to different ways. And our historians have done it. I mean, there's a very interesting historian. Um, called Tom, what's his name? He wrote a book called Persian Fire. Holland. Tom Holland. And then he did Rubicon, and now he's done a millennium on the right. You know, so you can do it, but it does take a lot of time. You know, just reading into a subject takes a lot of time, even when you think you know it. Do you read other, do you read historic fiction? Do you read? Yeah, you know, I read everything. I mean, I'm omnivorous. I read, um, you... yeah, I read memoirs, I read thrillers, I read diaries, I read novels. And I think novels are a very good way of getting into the period. And not necessarily with, with the great novels either, sometimes just the ordinary ones that they, they like. I mean, I've read a number of the novels before the First World War, which I'm looking at the moment. Uh, the spy novels, and Riddle in the Sand, which is a wonderful mm. novel, if you ever you know, wanted to do it. It shows the British fear of Germany. Um, yes, I, I've, been, I'm, I've been reading German novels, and I, last summer I read just to show off the great Transylvania trilogy. No, it really is. It's been, it has been translated, but it was written by a very interesting Hungarian um, statesman, it's a polymath. But it's about that the life of the Hungarian upper classes was what the first world war. And that gives you a sense of what that world was like. It's, it's wonderful. One last question. As somebody who is a historian, who teaches would-be historians, uh, and who interacts with the wider historically motivated world, in your view, are historians made? Or even born. When you when you look at people in your classes, do you have a sense? Yes, this person has the right stuff to go on and be a great historian, or is it is it much more complicated than that? Well, I do because I usually I, at the moment I see many graduate students. They've already begun to 
move into fields they want. Sure, but, but even then, you could probably categorize between them. Yeah. Here's the person who really yeah. has. Well, I teach extra at Oxford. I teach a <coughs> I teach a seminar in international relations, which includes both political scientists of history and both political scientists and historians. And in every seminar, every every group, every year. There are some who are just much more comfortable with history and have a nose for it, some who are much more comfortable with political science or political theory and have a nose for it. So yes, I think there, there are instincts, but you know, if you want to be good at it, you, you need to do a lot of work. Absolutely. And you need to be trained. But it helps that nose. I think it does, yeah. It's like science. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About History, Volume 3, along with separate discussions with David Armitage, Carl Gerth, Jennifer Michael Hecht, and Matthew Stewart. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.